Yeah. <laughs> well, let's turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 25. I, uh, I joke with Sylvester when Danny was a little slow to get up for the offering. I said he was still mesmerized by the Bible reading. <laughs> and he's thinking, what will he say about that? I said, that's what it might have been. Well, the more you, the more you learn about the Lord and... Uh, Certainly, if you're a child of God and you just, you know, I would imagine that you're increasing in your love toward him, the more you know about him. I, I find that. And one of the things I've really come to uh, understand and somewhat lament is uh, people's rejection of God is really a real revelation to what man is. Uh, there's no fault of God in that. God, God, God has been loving when he didn't need to be. God always goes the second, third, fourth, and, you know, he just goes further all the time. And uh, he offers every good thing. I was telling uh, you on Wednesday night, you know, the, the, one, the, the Aussie man who got saved in Nakonsawan uh, just over a month ago, uh, wonderfully saved. He said, I don't know why everybody doesn't want to get saved he said, uh, it's, it's just so good. And every time he says it, his eyes well up with tears. And every time we teach a new thing in the Bible, his eyes just well up with tears. And you can tell that, that he's in the tender embrace of the Father. And uh, he's just uh, touched by that. And, and God is just so, so good. And, I'm, and I, you know, it, it just speaks to the, the wretchedness and the rebellion of men's hearts. Uh, that they, uh, they have no regard for him, generally speaking. Uh, most, most people will perish, but it'll be of their own hand, for God made a way. Uh, they have rejected the lifeboat and, uh, and, uh, and still clinging to the ship as it's going down, and that's a choice. Uh, but it's no, it's no, it doesn't detract from God. God is good, good, good in every way. No, nobody will love you like the Lord will. That's the truth. Nobody will understand you like God does. God, God understands you in a very compassionate way. God never had expectations that you just walk perfectly. God knows uh, where you came from and uh, he knows who you are and he has incredible patience and mercy uh, with his own children. And, and really to know him is to love him. Uh, the more you know him, uh, the more you love him. Uh, uh, you know, I feel sorry of teaching the ties through Revelation. I don't feel sorry for them for that. But uh, uh, as I teach it to them, you know, they, they're just, uh, uh, you know, spell, uh, that would be a bad word, sort of, sort of just touched by the unfolding scenes of Revelation. And I feel sorry for people who dismiss the book of Revelation as being uh, so symbolic, it referred to Nero in another time. That, that's, that's what uh, false Christian cults teach, even some of the big ones. Uh, but when you look at it and you understand it literally and you see these scenes in heaven, what you need to understand is you're seeing things you're going to go to. You, you, this is, this is, you're seeing things that really are, are taking place. There is a throne where the Ancient of Days doth sit, and, uh, and there is one in the likeness of a lamb up there. And, uh, and I showed them how that when 
the, uh, the, the, the scroll with the seven, the book with the seven seals. And they said, who, who is worthy for this? Who can open this? And, uh, and uh, the heavenly scene is that one, one goes forward and it's the one in the likeness of a lamb. And it's Jesus and the, and the ancient of days hands him that seal. And all of this is taking place and the, the elders around the throne who worship him and it's all, it's all present, it's all real. It's more real than anything here. It'll be more lasting. So we want to... Uh, you know, it's wonderful to be saved and to know the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 25, I, I, I want to point out, it's really a three-point, uh, you know, uh, message this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, it's good for us to look at these passages for a number of reasons. First of all, because in Romans 15 verse 4, I hope it's a verse that you're uh, very familiar with, it says, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we can know that Deuteronomy chapter 25 was written for us. It was written for our learning. And, uh, and I hope you approach the scriptures that way. As you read, uh, seek the meaning and, uh, and ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand uh, why was this written for us? What, what can we learn uh, from this? So, so, and I say that because uh, there can be a tendency to be dismissive. I don't think we would, uh, certainly no one here would say, well, that's not the word of God. But, but we might just sort of fly past it like it pertained to someone else in another day, in another time. And I don't even have an ox and, you know... It's, I don't know how relevant that is to me. And we kind of speed past it. But the tragedy of that is you will miss an illumination of God's character. God is revealing himself in passages like this. And uh, we have limited aspects or limited views that we can approach God and learn from him. We, we only get to see what he shows us. And so when you come to something like this, actually what you're seeing you're seeing the character of God. And so you have a real opportunity to look at that and to, to learn him, to learn, to learn his ways. And so it's good for that reason. Now, uh, these were laws that were given to Israel and for them, uh, these things would have been actual laws and they would have been followed, as it were, to the letter of the law. These things were civil laws like we have laws uh, these would have been laws of that nation. So it certainly applied to them in a literal sense of laws. It doesn't quite apply to us that way in the sense that theirs was a theocratic state, but ours is not. So we don't live in a theocratic state. We don't live in a state where the state says God is supreme and all the laws of God and all governance will be decided by God. We don't, that's not where we live, if you haven't noticed. We live in a really a secular state. The state says we're secular. We're a secular state that is based on, uh, and they, they even want to denounce this part, but a secular state built upon the judo-Christian values uh, of those who were before us. That's really what we are. So nobody here is standing up this morning saying that, you know, we want to impose these things as literal laws 
on, uh, on everybody in our, in our country. We're not saying that, but we understood it was that way for them. But what they do do, they show us God clearer. And whenever you see God's commands to Israel, you have to know that unlike our politicians, God is not about the business of just making new laws to just be a lawmaker. So, so, so you know, if you get elected here to parliament, you make laws. And have you ever noticed that we never get to the place where someone says we have enough now? Every term is just, is just another three or four years of legislation, which is laws. And you just kind of wonder, do you ever get to the end of that? Apparently you don't. You never arrive at the place where they just say, well, these are the laws of the state and that's it. it just, they just keep getting added to. Well, God is not that way. He doesn't give laws to just uh, fill up a book or uh, uh, just sort of bog somebody down. If God is giving these laws, <clears throat> they're an illumination of God's character. And uh, they show us some things and, and just, you know, as a confirmation of that, I won't preach it, but see verse 4 there in the same chapter that says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. Now, that would have, that would have been a, a practical law in its day. It meant you couldn't put the muzzle over the mouth of an ox, a bit like you see people used to do with greyhounds, so they would muzzle them. If the ox was working, it was, it was able, it had, you had to let it feed. And it's another, you know, but, but, but Paul helps us to understand how we should approach all of these scriptures in that Paul says in the New Testament, doth God care for oxen? And, 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 and Paul illuminates that that actually wasn't about oxes, that it was actually about the men of God and the people who labour for the gospel. And, uh, but Paul's, Paul's illumination of that shows us how we should approach this. Fact of it is, when he said, doth God care for oxen, he means God is, God is not sitting in heaven making laws for, for oxes. And even though it, it, it talks about that, Paul is saying there was a meaning in that beyond, beyond the obvious. And so, so that helps us to look at these passages and say, well, okay, this is here. What should we learn from this? And, uh, and I'm going to just, I, I, you know, I guess you know, I, I really love passages like this because they show me the Lord and, and they touch me. And they touch me because he's so wise. They, they touch me because I love the fact that, that God is not out of touch with how life is down here. I, I love the fact that God is not in a holy, uh, you know, uh, uh, I pray that it's appropriate to say this. He's not sort of in a holy bubble, uh, distant from, you know, the reality of this awful place and the sin and all the rest that we live in here. He's very much in touch with how you live your life. He knows what people talk about in the smoko room. He knows what it's like to, to labour with the blokes out on the site. He knows what happens in corporate offices. He knows what people do in their homes. Uh, he gets it. He, know, he knows how people live. He's wholly in touch with that. And that's, a, that's wondrous right there because, because he's acknowledging the fact that we're born into sin and a lot of our ways are sinful. And, and, and rather than just ignoring that part of us and as his holiness might lead him to, he enters into our life and says, okay, you, you, you live that way, sure, you, you have that environment, I understand these things happen, but this is the way you look at that. 
And so it's wondrous in that way. Uh, Verse number 11 uh, and 12 will be our our first one point. And uh, verse number 11 and 12 talks about something that I've actually seen happen on multiple occasions. So that's the first thing. I wouldn't want you to be thinking that this actually doesn't happen because I've actually seen it happen uh, on, um, on more, than, more than one occasion. And I haven't seen it happen here, but I have seen it happen uh, over in Asia. It's happened a bit. And, uh, and uh, notice what God says in verse number 11. First of all, can you see the fact he says, when men strive together one more? Just like, uh, like God saying, that's, that's what you people, that's what you do. When this happens, we say, well, 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 that shouldn't happen, Lord. If everyone, if everyone just loves each other and everybody just prefers his neighbour above himself, then and, and if there be no pride, there'd be no contentions, uh, it shouldn't happen. And, and I think, you know, that's all true, but God looks at what we actually do do and says, well, when it happens, you know, when, so he, he acknowledges that it happens. And what's he's talking about? That when men strive together one with another. So when two blokes get into a fight about something and, uh, and they're in a fight and, uh, and the wife uh, in the flurry of the moment, if you've ever seen these things unfold, I actually saw it about five weeks ago. And uh, I was standing somewhere uh, on a street corner. Uh, actually, I was in Puttier. Uh, and I was standing somewhere on a street corner, which is, has its own legendary status for lots of reasons. But, uh, but I was standing there and, sh- and I heard a commotion. And you know how it is when you hear women screaming and people yelling and, and all of that. And I looked over and just this whole thing was being played out. A couple of blokes were into it on the footpath outside the 7-Eleven. And, uh, and the Thai lady was going in to rescue her man. And so it all played out. It's a, bit, it's, a bit, it's a bit unpleasant and stressful and everybody stops and looks. And it's particularly in Asia, there can be a lot of noise with all these sort of things. And, and so, you know, that's what he's saying. Two, two men get into a fight and the wife, the, wife, uh, well, the wife draws near to deliver her husband. That's, that's, I don't know, we should meditate on that a little bit. Probably a few wives here today have delivered their husbands on one of two occasions. Maybe not quite like this, but... But uh, I think probably more than we know, our, our wives have delivered us. They've probably delivered us in prayer on more times than we know. When they just took something to prayer rather than take it to us. Maybe, maybe, maybe they've delivered us on occasions when we weren't even present when they spoke. But they spoke for us. And they implored others to be patient with us. And, uh, and perhaps they presented our, our goodness versus what others had seen. And uh, they've delivered us. And a good wife does that from time to time. And I uh, said, when the wife goes to deliver her husband, now these people are in a physical alteration, and in the flurry of the moment, uh, she takes her hand and, you know, she, whatever she does, but you know where she does it. Do you? I don't have to illuminate, do I? Are we, are we okay? With the, uh, with the end of verse number 11, she grabs him by the... She, she doesn't say grabs him. I'm getting a bit, <laughs> bit, a bit too, uh, too into it, perhaps. She taketh him by the secrets. 
you know, she, she, she grabs the man in the place where she's not supposed to. It's a fight, you know, she's trying to deliver her husband. And, uh, you know, you just read this and think, you know, were you in Padilla five weeks ago when, when this happened? And, and, uh, and then God makes a, a pronouncement uh, that this will be the law of that. And the law is, in verse number 12, that if she does that, it says, Thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eyes shall not pity her. So this was introduced as a law, a law to the people of Israel. Now, what, 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 do, we, what do we learn from that? When we said in Romans 15, 4, whatsoever things are written aforetime, written for our learning. So what do we learn? So here's, here's, here's my thought from this. Uh, number one, uh, you are responsible for what you do even when you're angry. You are responsible for what you do even when you're angry. God says you are responsible for, for whatever it is you do even in the moment of anger. And you can see here uh, God's response to that. She's responsible for what she did even though it was never planned ahead and it was just done in a, a moment. A moment. You know, those kind of moments can change people and their families forever. We've heard a few of those moments over the last little while, haven't we? Those one-punch moments where someone doesn't think just for a moment. A moment of road rage. Uh, a moment of responding to a drunken provocation. Just a moment. And God is telling us here, and he made it law for them, to, to make it clear, you, will be, you are responsible for what you do, even when you do it in a moment of anger. And there's nothing quite like watching you know, a couple of Asian people or Eastern people both when they get to this point, it gets really animated and quite wild. There's a reason that Proverbs said, find another corner of the house if she gets that way. Because I've seen people like this and, uh, and they cross a point where they're just not going to calm down. It, they've gone right, and it's crazy, man. There's, there's loud yelling, the, the emotions. You know, I, I find that uh, the Thai people are incredibly patient. They are far, far more patient uh, than I've ever found uh, in the West. I think they put up with things and that amaze me that they do. But I've also found that if they do cross the threshold, it goes really crazy and dangerous and wild. And, and you can't talk it down. So I'm just trying to paint a picture of what's going on here. And you can see that this wasn't premeditated, it wasn't planned, there probably was good intent, passions were at play here, you know, this is my man, uh, I love my husband, and, and all, you know, all of those things, but she crosses a line here that God said no. And God doesn't say, well, you know, yeah, you're a little bit worked up, you, you just, you got angry. Uh, so it doesn't matter. No, no, that's not the principle here. The principle is here that we're responsible for what we do even when we're angry. 
And I want you to digest that. You're responsible for that uh, barrage of abuse that came out of your mouth when you were angry. You're, you're, you, by the way, the Bible says, by our words we will be justified and by our words we will be condemned. And that's, speaking, that's not talking about go to hell, go to heaven, though that probably will come up in the judgment seat of those who are lost. But it's saying that the judgment of God on your life, the chastening of God on your life, by your words, you can bring it on by words. Don't, ever, don't, don't underestimate the danger of, of bad words coming from you. Uh, the Bible even says they're spoken in presence of angels. Uh, that those things are heard. So, so, so that's the warning. Even when you're angry, even when you're worked up, you are responsible for what you do. Even if you're provoked, you're responsible for what you do. So I, I need to be praying. I, I need to approach this soberly and understand that I cannot be a man of passions who is just led uh, by my feelings or my emotions uh, or, or I cannot be someone who is simply uh, responsive in an uncontrolled way to what goes on around me. I have to be better than that. I, I have to be above provocations. I have to be in control even when others aren't. I have to guard my mouth when even something would rise up in me. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, Be ye angry... And sin not. And now you see a connection. Because, because anger of itself is not a sin. God gets angry about some things. There is a righteous anger. But God says, be ye angry and sin not. Don't Your anger should not lead you to a place where you sin. And if, if it does, then you must understand that you're accountable for that thing which you did. So we understand what God would think about the one-punch scenario. Uh, in the morning, after that happens, there's regrets. No doubt. Uh, but God's view is you're still responsible for what you did. Perhaps you were drunk. You're still responsible. You drank the liquor. Uh, you took the drug, you smoked the ice, you went wild with rage, you were out of your head, you lost control, you weren't yourself, you wouldn't have normally done it. None of that, none of that means that you're not responsible. The biblical view is you are responsible for your actions and a just society will have laws based on what people did, not why they did it. A just society judges things on what people do and doesn't seek to go back into all the rest. There's accountability for actions. Can you see that our, our, our nutty, liberal, left, lunatic uh, influences, can I keep going, in our, uh, in our country are taking us to bizarre levels of nobody's accountable for anything. 
Can you, can you see where they... Because, because in, their, in, their, in their worship of uh, the sciences and psychology and, and in their worship of humanism and, and in their, their state of demonic delusion, uh, they want to take us to a place where nobody's responsible for anything and uh, because of the factors of this and that and the other. And uh, I'm not standing here this morning denying that those factors are not influential in shaping somebody. But the Bible says we're responsible for what we do, no matter the factors that were behind why we did it. And, and, and why should we say this? Because lest Christians get caught up in the spirit of the age and we start thinking like the secularists around us and are not balanced and biblical in our understanding. So we must visit passages like this and realign ourselves with God and uh, with his character and his perspective. Uh, We may have had a certain rough upbringing. We may have lacked certain teaching and opportunities, but we're still responsible for what we do. And uh, there's uh, there's, uh, things here that we ought to think about. No child should be lashed in anger. No face should be slapped. I was in a meeting of preachers once and uh, a lady came in, uninvited, made her way down and, and I was just, just an assistant, walked up to a preacher, pulled her hand back and it all happened so quick and slap right across his face. And uh, what did he do? I don't know. But I know you don't slap people like that. It's never right. It's never right. And if you'd been in this time, it wouldn't have just not been right. It would have been outright dangerous. So we're responsible. No child should be lashed in anger, no face slapped, no person cussed out, no provocation is ever justification. And we have to be careful with that. We're to be temperate and self-controlled in matters of life, in matters of spirit. You shouldn't yell at people through your car window. You shouldn't... You shouldn't you shouldn't just react in anger. You need to be better than that. And uh, if you do do it, you need to correct yourself and say, I need to be better than that. Holy Spirit, help me. Uh, I, I, I need to be better than the people that, you know, I'm contending with in the Boxing Day sales. <laughs> I need to be better than that. And uh, let's have some dignity and some Christ-likeness in our conduct in all of those things. You need to be better than the people you're around. You say, well, all my mates do it. You're not them. You're not them. They're not sitting here today hearing what you're hearing. You ought to be better than that. Number two is found in verses 13 to 16. And uh, it talks about, well, it says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag divers weights, different measuring weights. Uh, you shall not have in your house different, different, different measuring rods. Uh, now, this says a lot about the Lord, a real lot. And uh, in a practical way, it's saying that you can't keep uh, different measures for different occasions. Uh, so, uh, you know, recently I went into a hardware shop to buy some uh, plastic... Uh, 
you know, uh, matting to go on the shower floor that you didn't slip over, and you, you bought it by the metre off the roll. Uh, and so they pulled it off the roll at the hardware store, it was in Thailand, and instead of using a tape measure, they have a measuring stick. And that stick is one metre. And, uh, and, uh, and it's the measuring stick. It's not left to the person to, to work it out. They, they put the measuring stick down and they cut the metre and that's the price you pay as agreed before. Now, what, what would it be like if we went in there and, and, and they said, uh, oh, look, there's a Westerner coming. Get out the other measuring stick. Uh, and they gave you... 800, you know, uh, millimetres. You've got 80 centimetres uh, for the same price, but a tie came in and uh, they got out the, uh, the other measuring rod. Now, that, God said that wouldn't be right. And uh, at least if the store did that, they should tell us beforehand. But he's, he's saying that in the just society that will be Israel, there'll be none of that. You're not, you're not to conduct yourself that way. You're not to, when you when you come up on your scales to sell your wares and somebody's going to buy a pound, then the weight you put on the other side of the scale must indeed be a pound. You can't dabble with it. You can't you can't fiddle the books. You can't alter the the weight. You can't alter the measurement. And and uh, you know this happens all over the world, but God is saying in God's in God's society the one that he's going to rule over, there'll be none of that. We won't have a place like that. Can you see something of the character of God in this? That, 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 that he's not contended for people to be cheated. That he doesn't, he's, he's not prepared that that should be so. And uh, there's a fairness and a, and a truth in that. So, so he says you can't have Divers weights in your bag, and, and this is even the notice. We'll, we'll come back with this. There's, there's, there's a meaning even in where you have these things, and you can't have divers measures in your house. And what does he say? He says that it's an abomination unto the Lord. Now, an abomination that's strong words, isn't it? I'll tell you something about abominations, and there's, there's lots of them. Well, there's you know, there's a number of them mentioned in the Bible. Let me, let me tell you the, the strongest thing that you probably have never heard about an abomination. An abomination, the end of verse number 15, whatever else it does, it shortens your days. And that's just what you need to understand. What, whatever else it does, whatever else it is, it shortens your days. You'll live less. It will take life from you is what God is saying. Your days will be less. Now you can believe that or not believe that and not, either way, just like the law of gravity, it will still be so. Abominations lessen your days on the earth. In the same way uh, that honouring your mother and father can increase your days on the earth. Now, you can, you can theorise that away all you will, but God has said what he said, he meant what he said, and it is the truth. And uh, I just wish that God's people would grasp these things and actually believe them more that we should. Because we, what we do, we believe what we think is reasonable 
and other things we put in the category of uh, what is it, a saying, is it a, an analogy, uh, is it just a sort of spiritual talk, but we don't always understand the practicality that what God is saying is deeply true. Abominations shorten your life. That's just, it is what it is. So he said, you can't do that. Now, now, see here in verse number 15, thou shalt have a perfect and just weight and a perfect and a just measure. Now, what you must understand here, and this goes at the heart of who God is, is that God hates, you know, kit is a Thai word. It's really strong. God hates distortions. God hates half-truths. God hates false measures. God is not just a God of truth. God is truth itself. All truth, everything comes from God. All, the, all matter, all elements, all everything. It all came from God. God. God is not just a line of truth. God is the whole truth. And, uh, and that's very profound. And what God is saying is an assault on truth, a distortion of truth, is just a deep offence to me. Uh, lies, lies matter. Lies are much more, they're greater and they're more worse than we understand they are. And so God said, we'll have none of that. What you will have, in verse 15, you'll have a perfect and a just weight and a perfect and a just measure. Now, that's what we have to have. By the way, this is, your, this is your perfect and just weight. This is your perfect and just measure. Only by this can you truly know what something is. Okay, outside of this, you'll be led by your feelings, your opinions. Outside of this, you'll make some sins worse and some less based on whether you do them or not. Outside of this, you'll mislead yourself. And, uh, and uh, you'll, be, you'll just be the sum of your own opinions and ideas. But this is your just weight and your just measure. This will tell you what is true and what isn't. This will tell you how do you weigh that thing. This will put everything in context and everything in balance. And God said you need to have that. You, you can't have false measures and false weights. There will be, no, be no dealings like that. None of that. You're not to have that. You're to have a perfect measure. Uh, as, I go, as I grow in faith, I'm understanding a little bit more how much God hates lies and all the things I just said before and how that any taking away from truth is a taking away from him. And have you noticed that we can lie to ourselves? I mean, we don't sit down and say, uh, now I'm going to lie to you. But we tell ourselves things that maybe they comfort us. Maybe, maybe our lies give us a certain comfort or maybe, maybe the lies we tell ourselves buy us time, we think. Maybe, maybe we'll come to the truth a bit later. Maybe, maybe the lies we tell ourselves help us to separate ourselves from the things that would apply to everybody else, but perhaps not exactly me. And there's a great danger in lying to yourself. And only God can show you that. In fact, the greatest judgment is to be handed over to your own delusions. The very worst thing that could ever happen to you 
was God say, I'm going to let you go on your own merry way. I'm going to let you lie to yourself. I'm going to let you live out the, 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 all of that. And we, we call that being reprobate, being beyond rescue because of delusion. There's a real danger in that. Now, see what he says in verse 13 and 14? You shall not have them in your bag. That means he's not just saying do right. He's saying don't even keep those things. You, you're, you're not to have them in your bag. Not only that, you're not to have them in your house. You, you, it's not even to be there because, you see, if it's there, you might be tempted to use it. If it's there, you haven't really done away with it all. If it's there, you're still hedging your bets. Okay, now there's a Bible term for this, and it's in Romans 13, verse 14, and all, you know, the five verses that go before that. But verse 14 of Romans 13 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So a man who's keeping false weights and false measures has provisioned himself for sin. And God is saying that we should not provision ourselves for the lust of the flesh or to fulfill those things thereof. So the first thing you want to do is you want to, well, not the first thing, but, but, but it, it, you know, is to not make provision for the flesh, is to cut off the supply. Because until you're willing, until you're willing to, to take out of your bag and out of your house uh, those things that really are only provisions for future sin, you're not fully done with it yet. You may have come some way. You may say, well, it's been, you know, months since I've pulled those false weights out. I'm better than I was before, and perhaps you are. But you're not wholly there yet. Because you still, you still have the provisions of sin waiting for you to call them up should you want to. You see, that's a bondage. Because you can't cut it loose. It implores you, don't cast me away. Put me down, if you will, for a while, but please leave me here. Doesn't God know us? Don't keep them in your bag. Don't have them in your house. Don't make provisions for the flesh. You know, one of the first steps in dealing with such things is right after humble confession and prayer, and that must come, humble confession, where you humble yourself and you confess to your God in humility and you pray and you take the first step to disclaiming your sin. It's the first step to saying, I don't want it anymore. A lot of people never get to that place. First step is humble confession and prayer, but then right after that is to remove the provisions of further sin. 
And when you do that, you can break spiritual bondages. Do you know when you're in a spiritual bondage, it will play itself out in your life in practical ways. You'll be having great practical troubles that you'll be uh, probably attributing to all kinds of things, not realising that the spiritual bondage is what's causing the manifesting of all those things in your life. And so you pray, you humble yourself, and then you make the decision to remove the provisions of further sin. You might pray a prayer like this. God, the Bible says that the dog returns to its vomit. And today I'm praying that I'd not be that dog. Today I'm begging you that I'd not be that dog, that I'd not go back to the bad thing that you cast out of my life, that I eat it and take it back in again. That's what the dog does. The dog disgorges something that is problematic to it, that is, is hurtful. It, it, dis, it pushes it out and then in a few, few moments later it goes and consumes it to put it back in again. And so you might pray a prayer like that and then you make no provisions for further sin. It's bold. It can be difficult and daring. Say, I don't trust myself, trust God. But my, how God loves it when we sincerely action our prayers by faith. When we, when we do things that, that, and we say to God, I position myself as an expectant of your grace when the hour of temptation arises again, that you will at that hour give me grace. For I know, Lord, by nature I am that dog. Hmm. God said it's the same measurement, the same truth, only the perfect and just one. And then lastly, as we finish and quickly, verse 17 and 19, and all of this is part of having a just society Verse 17, God says, remember what Amalek did. Now, the reason God said that to them, remember what Amalek did, is because God was remembering what Amalek did. And uh, this is a good passage because, again, it's very, it's very insightful to, to the Lord and very consistent with uh, many of the things he does. And God had a particular a particular abhorrence for what Amalek had done. And uh, it's pretty serious because God said, I want, you, I, I want you to remember what they did. And he's commanded that they should, uh, that they, end of verse number 19, that they should blot out the remembrance of Amalek, which was to blot out Amalek. God was appalled at what Amalek did. Now, now it's not enough to say Amalek was an enemy of Israel. They were, but Israel had other enemies. But there was something here that particularly was particularly abhorrent to God, and he was appalled at what they did. And he lists it out, and the evil of what they did is spelled out in verse number 18. And what they did, he said, they met you in the way. And uh, by the way, this might have been the first time that this is really... Uh, spelled out. This is the first time someone perhaps has actually quantified what Amalek did. If you'd asked someone in Israel, they probably would have said, or maybe they would have said, 
Yeah, no, they, they really, they, they attacked us. They, I tell you what, just came against us when we already had our problems. It's interesting how man looks at something and then what God says happened. Huh? So here's what God said. God said, they met you in the way and they smote the hindmost part of it. They, they attacked the people who were lagging behind the stragglers. Low lifes. Bottom feeders. Because you know who was at the, the who was left behind? That was your grandma. They took out your grandma. You know who else they took out? They took out your disabled child who couldn't keep up. That's what they did. That's what he said. They smote the hind parts, the feeble, the behind thee, when thou was faint and weary, and he feared not God. So they, they attacked the, the stragglers, the weak, the, the, those who were left behind, and God said, don't forget it, blot them out. You know, God has great, great uh, compassions for the feeble, the weak, the stragglers. Do you know why we're weak? You understand that, that we only became weak when sin came in our world? You understand there was no death, there was no ageing, there was no illness, there was no, no children uh, disabled or born with disabilities. None of that, none of that, that's all came after. Uh, we brought that on ourselves collectively through the entrance of sin. So now here is God not saying, not looking at our weakness and saying, well, you got your just desserts, didn't you? Some, 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 uh, some of our brethren might say some things like that sometimes. But God looks at the weak and said, yeah, I know how you got weak, but I still pity you. I still have mercy for you. And God has great mercy for the weak, the, uh, the elderly, uh, the disabled, the poor, the people in society who cannot defend themselves. So what should you do? You should be the same. You should be the same. God even says things like, when you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. I think, I think one, of the, one of the reasons that God has uh, uh, provisioned us in the work of God in Thailand, and we've always been swimming above our depth. We, I mean, we've always been uh, way in above our heads, always, the whole, the whole thing. And yet here we are, you know, a, a decade down, and yes... Uh, thank God people have sacrificed and given. And, uh, but I, I believe in part as we have helped the poor, the weak, the ones that no one would bother with, who could give us back nothing, nothing. God has said when you, when you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord and God always pays his debts. And God blesses that. So, so that ought to be our approach to those who... There, there, there are people in our church who are stronger and there are people who are weaker. And as you discern that, you should have a little more compassion for the weaker. Amen. There are people in our church who have had the benefits of a Christian home with parents that love them or a parent that loved them. And there are people in our church who had none of that and have really come from none of that and are just trying to 
do what they can do. They're a little weaker, perhaps, and you should have more compassion, more mercy for that. Uh, God disdains those who prey on the vulnerable and the weak. That's the abhorrence of child abuse. That's the that's the uh, that's the, in the same way that in the same way that adultery is a is a blight on a sacred bond. To 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 prey on a child to to do that to a child is to come against innocence, and that becomes spiritual. Where God said you've you've uh, you've your audacity to invade this area for your own self, for your own pleasures, is an abhorrence. Better for you a millstone was cast around your neck and you were put in the sea. And I'm just saying that that's how God views those things. So we want to be particularly mindful of the weak, the downtrodden, uh, the vulnerable, the elderly... And, and say it's the spirit of God that we, we take care of those people. And we will not tolerate anything within our control that would come against those folks. That's what God is saying. So it wouldn't be too bad, would you agree, to live in God's society? Wouldn't be too bad. Uh, by the way, if you had to cut her hand off for grabbing the secrets, he said, don't pity her. Because that's your natural response. All of us would be saying the next morning, you know, she's a good person. She loved her husband. She didn't mean it. She's never done anything like that. See, and we would follow our own passions. And then what we'd do, we'd alter the law. And we'd say, oh, take care of it. And that's what we'd do. And we wouldn't understand that when we did that, we were pulling the first thread of our garment and soon after that, we'd unravel the whole piece. And that's why we have to follow the law of God as it is. And that's why in the millennial reign of Christ, that could be just eight years away, he's going to rule with a rod of iron on the earth. What's a rod of iron? It means that the laws will be enforced. And it's going to seem heavy, but I'll guarantee you what everybody's going to say soon after. Boy, this is good, isn't it? This is really good. Look, at our family's really good for this. Isn't this great? Isn't it great? We know our neighbours and we feel safe and, and it's good at night. Everyone goes to bed and we get up in the morning and all the, all the things that God intended us to be. He'll, he'll show us that during the millennial reign of Christ. But he will rule with a rod of iron. And we will need to do what he says. Amen? Amen. Well, that's a good, uh, good, I think it's good. Okay, pastor, song leader or whatever we would have.